God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And that is the whole sermon in two sentences. So if you feel like checking out now, at least you have heard the crux of the message. But as a sermon like this needs to be fleshed out a bit more, I encourage you to stick around to join me for this ride that we're about to take. I want us to unpack this a little bit more. And as my custom is to not always tell you where I'm going or how we got there, I'm going to change that today. Today, I want to show you something, show a little bit of my work. I want to risk a little bit more light. One of the things that I want to accomplish in my preaching is to teach God's people how to read the Bible. It's the idea that if we just keep giving you fish, you're going to eat fish. But if we teach you how to fish, you'll be able to eat as much fish as you want over the course of your life whether we're here to give you fish or not. So today, I want us to look at this story, and I want us to approach this story from three different angles. And what we'll do is this. We're going to take the story, and we're going to turn it and look at it, and then we're going to turn it again and look at it, and we're going to turn it again and look at it. And by the end, you will have seen more of this story than perhaps you even wanted to see. But here's how we're going to approach it. Three questions. One question is, what does this story have to do with God's people, with our forefathers in the Old Testament? The fancy way of asking this is, what does this story look like in its canonical context? The second question is, what does this story have to do with Christ and the church? The fancy way of asking that is, what does this story look like in its Christological context? And then the third question is, what does this story have to do with you and with me? What connections can we make between our story and this story? Fancy way to say that is, what does it look like in its contemporary context? Now, if you get lost somewhere along the way, or if you feel disoriented, and you feel like you can't make your way back, just remember, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And if you get dizzy on this ride and you think, I can't take it anymore, let me off, you're free to go. But as you go, remember, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And with that in mind, let's go into this story considering the first question, what does this story have to do with God's people, our forefathers in the Old Testament? We've been walking through the Bible this year, and we've been seeing how the story of God is unfolding in a variety of ways, from one generation to the next, through a variety of people. God continues to do his work, sometimes in overt ways, sometimes in covert ways, but God is always doing something. And here in this story, we learn that God interacts in the world through various people, and here we see that God humiliates the proud and yet exalts the humble and God shames the arrogant and yet he honors the lowly in spirit. In his book, Steering Through Chaos, Os Guinness and a few others tackle the seven deadly sins, contrasting the vices and the virtues that confront us on a daily basis. And they say this about pride. 
Pride is the first, worst, and most prevalent of all of the seven deadly sins. It is either the source or the chief component of all other sins. The source of pride is neither the world out there nor the flesh in here, but the devil himself. And in the story before us today, we see this working out in a man who has grown in his pride. King Saul is pursuing David with white hot rage and puke green envy. And his anger and his jealousy are fueled by red-blooded pride. But how did it come to this? How did he reach this point? What madness drove him there? If you remember back a few stories ago, we learned that the Holy Spirit had departed from Saul. And Saul was being tormented by an evil spirit. And so it makes sense for us to see him now driven by this irrational conceit. By an exaggerated sense of self-importance. He was suffering from what Os Guinness called the arrogance of the illusion of invulnerability. A simpler way to say that is Saul felt invincible, untouchable, like he was the master of his fate, the captain of his soul. He was too big to fail. Dorothy Sayers warns that the devilish strategy of pride is that it attacks us, not in our weakest points, but in our strongest points. And we certainly see that working its way out in the life of Saul. You can just imagine Saul sitting around in the dark gloom of a night, clenching his teeth, muttering under his breath, I'm still the king. I'm the tall, dark, and handsome one. I'm the one that everyone was looking up to. I'm the one that won victories. I am the Lord's anointed. Everyone loved me. Until this ruddy shepherd boy came along and stole the limelight. Oh, I hate that guy. And even Samuel the prophet loves him now. Saul was wallowing in self-pity. And that self-pity was fueled by his pride. And that pride drove him across Israel to find David, to bring him down. In his book, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis says that pride is essentially competitive, which means it feeds on conflict and controversy, can't survive without it. And here Saul is generating this conflict and controversy because he has to have something to fuel his rage and his jealousy. He has to have motivation and reason, justification, to go after David. Long before Saul came looking for David here in the wilderness of Engedi in 1 Samuel 24, the prophet Samuel had confronted Saul about these matters and exposed the heart of his problem. Samuel spoke with Saul and he struck him with the sword of the Spirit when he said to him, You are little in your own eyes. You're a small man. You see yourself as small, and yet you are the Lord's anointed. You are the king of Israel. But that isn't enough for you, is it, Saul? 
That's my paraphrase of what took place there. And if you psychoanalyze it just a little bit, you'll see that what Samuel means is something like this. Saul, you feel insecure and insignificant. You have spent much of your life and much of your reign trying to prove yourself, trying to live up to some high calling, trying to compensate for your own insecurities and insufficiencies, trying to make a name for yourself. In other words, Saul was doing all the things that none of you would ever dream of doing. We see this pride at work in his life by the way he builds monuments to himself and by the way he tries to justify his partial obedience to the Lord. He's a rebel without a cause. He idolizes his own legacy, his ego, his own name. Sometimes you see Saul doing more for the Lord than the Lord requires. Other times you see him doing less than the Lord requires, which is a way of saying that one day he's a legalist, the next day he's a libertine. His pride keeps tripping him up, making him stumble, knocking him down. We see at work in him the thing that Victor Hugo, the author of The Hunchback of Notre Dame, observed about pride when he said, pride is the fortress of evil in a man. We see that vice working like a fortress in Saul's life. Pride is a fortress. It's giving him all of the strength and support and the security that he craves in order to do life on his own terms, in his own way, and with his own timing. And when Samuel comes to him and says to him that the Lord is tearing the kingdom out from his hand, he felt that a little bit. But he didn't feel it as much as he felt it when Samuel added, not only is the Lord tearing the kingdom out of your hands, he is giving the kingdom to a better man. Pastor Zach tempted me between services to break out in song at this point. Pearl jams can't find a better man. And I resist the temptation. He's giving the kingdom to a better man. And this gets Saul's attention. Strikes a blow to his pride. Sticks a sword in his ego. And you notice as the story unfolds that Saul is far more concerned about the competition out there than he is concerned about the corruption of his own heart or the consequences of his own sin. All he wants to know is, who is the better man? Who could be better than me? And so he keeps his eyes peeled and sends his spies out to find this better man. He finds out the hard way who the better man is when he leads the armies of Israel back home after David has struck down Goliath. The women come out of the cities everywhere they go, celebrating, dancing, singing, Saul has struck down his thousands, David his tens of thousands. And if you've been paying attention to the story, you know that the only person that we know of that David has struck down at this point is Goliath. Goliath must have counted for ten thousands of soldiers in the hearts and minds of the people. It was in this moment or in this series of moments, that King Saul felt this surge of anger and jealousy flooding his heart. Why? Because now he realizes 
who the better man is. Now he realizes that the better man is a shepherd boy. A scrappy street fighter. A country boy that slays giants. He's the better man? you got to be kidding me. That's the competition. And the scriptures tell us that in the, in the stories leading up to 1 Samuel 24, that Saul kept an eye on David. That Saul tried to kill David, not once but twice. And that Saul kept sending David out on military campaigns. Obviously with the hope that David would somehow be killed in one of those campaigns. And the scriptures tell us that Saul stood in fearful awe of David. As much as Israel's love for David would increase, Saul's hatred for David would increase. His hatred matched their love. He was obsessed with one thing, killing David as soon as possible at any cost. And the Spirit of God paints a very bleak picture of the psychological welfare or psychological condition of Saul, describing, describing him as someone who was raving mad. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And by the time we reach 1 Samuel 24, we see that this proud man has been hunting a humble shepherd for a few years He's threatened to kill or harm anyone who follows David and supports him. That includes David's parents, and that includes some of God's prophets, whom Saul struck down with a sword. In 1 Samuel 24, we find Saul with 3,000 soldiers of fortune on a search and destroy mission. They know that David is there because spies have reported, we saw David in the wilderness of En Gedi. What they didn't count on is that David is a wise and wily shepherd. He knows the best paths to take. He knows the best places to rest, to lead his flock. He knows where all the water is, where the shade is. He can find the creature comforts even in the wilderness. And he leads his followers to En Gedi. En Gedi doesn't mean much to us, but if we explore what it means, we learn that En Gedi was known for springs of fresh water, aromatic flowers, natural beauty, rock formations, and lush plants. It's located on the west side of the Dead Sea. It's like Eden, an Eden-like oasis in the desert. And when we see in the story that David and his men are making their way to En Gedi, it should remind us of something symbolic here. Remind us of God keeping his promise to return his people from death and exile and bring them back to paradise. It's a small flash of that. A small glimpse of that hope. But just like we saw in the Garden of Eden, an ancient serpent snuck in and here he appears in the form of King Saul who has appeared to disrupt the peace and to destroy good people. He shows up like a roaring lion seeking someone that he may devour, and that someone is David. And so while he is hunting high and low trying to find David, suddenly nature calls. And even the most prideful of men must answer when nature calls. 
And so Saul dips into a cave, which, by the way, is the safest porta potty in all of the wilderness. Or so it seems. Because what he doesn't know is that hiding deep in the back of the cave is the very man that he is hunting. David and his men have taken shelter there. Now, king or no king, there is nothing glorious or majestic about sitting on a throne and relieving yourself. But if you want to add insult to injury, just have someone walk in on you. Or just have a bunch of little kids bang on the door and shove things under it to have you examine them, check it out. You moms know exactly what I'm talking about. That makes it even more humiliating and increases the frustration. But as here in the cave, with his feet covered and his backside exposed, that King Saul appears as vulnerable as any man in any story has ever appeared. He is ripe for the taking. Target on his back, all David has to do is strike him down. His life is in David's hands. And somewhere along the way, the Lord has made it known to David that David may do with his enemy whatever seems good to him. So the Lord does not require David to spare Saul's life. He doesn't require David to kill Saul. He leaves it up to David. This is the thing about God's sovereignty that we overlook sometimes in the Reformed world is that God's sovereignty does not remove our responsibility. Rather, it establishes our responsibility. And here, the Lord God has given David a free choice to make. Do what you want with this man. And he waits and watches to see what David will do. There is a battle between grace and pride inside of David. But in the end, grace overcomes pride and he resists all of the social pressure and even his own personal desire to put an end to Saul's life. Why does he do that? He tells us why. Listen to his own rationale. David gives this reason that Saul was the Lord's anointed, the Messiah, the Christ, the King of Israel. And David respected the position, if not the person. So he doesn't want to go down in history as the man who assassinated a defenseless king in a cave. He doesn't want to go down in history as a coward who stabbed his enemy in the back. So he takes a different approach. Humiliation. He sneaks up, cuts off a corner of the robe, and then sneaks away. And the symbolism there is so thick. Because earlier in the story, Saul once reached out to Samuel and grabbed his robe and tore a piece of the robe off. And it was in that moment that God said to Saul, the kingdom has been torn from your hand and given to a better man. And now that better man has come and cut off a corner of this fallen king's robe. And he carries the corner of that king's robe in his hand. The better man now has the royal robe in his possession. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And this is why David acted the way he did. King Saul exits the cave, goes on his way, and David steps out into the blazing sunlight. And he calls to him, my lord, the king. 
Why do you persecute me? What have your advisors told you about me to make you hate me so much? Don't you know what I am? I'm nobody. I'm a nothing. I'm a dead dog. I'm a flea on the back of a dead dog. I'm your ally, not your enemy. And if you want proof of that, look in my hand because I'm holding a corner of your royal garment in my hand. I could have killed you, but I didn't. I could have slayed you, but I spared your life. Let this be the proof, the evidence between us that I'm no traitor. This is no act of treason. I'm still a loyal subject to the crown. Imagine the shock and the fear in Saul's heart. He sees a piece of his clothing in David's hand. If he hadn't already relieved himself in the cave, he would have relieved himself right on that spot. Because he realized that he had been caught with his pants down. That he was utterly exposed and someone spared his life. How in the world is he ever going to recover from this humiliation? Humility is such an underrated virtue, not only in the world, but even in the church. We associate humility with weakness, not with strength. We imagine the humble person as someone who is low down, beneath us, but not high up and above us. Humble servants, humble people are servants, but they're not sovereign They're the laborers, not the leaders. They do all the grunt work. They get none of the glory. The lowly in spirit are here to do the menial tasks that are beneath the rest of us. And we tolerate them. And we actually want to keep them around, but we tolerate them so long as they keep their eyes to the floor and keep their opinions to themselves. That's how we view the humble. We treat humility as a vice. We treat pride as a virtue. We call evil good. We call good evil in the church and in the world. But stories like this show us that God humiliates the proud and God exalts the humble, that he shames the arrogant and that he honors the lowly in spirit. But that's not all we learn from a story like this. We learn something of the gospel in this story, don't we? Something of the gospel in life, which leads us to our second question. What does this story have to do with Jesus? What does it have to do with Christ and the church? What does it look like in its Christological context? Well, The conflict between Saul and David is a story as old as time. Remember that in the beginning, God established enmity between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. And God promised to use that enmity, that conflict and controversy to send a savior into the world who would eventually crush the serpent's head and put an end to that enmity and bring about peace for the nations. Well, in the story before us, we see that enmity is established between Saul and David. 
And King Saul appears here as a serpent, as a seed of the serpent, as someone who is tormented by an evil spirit, as someone who loves the world and the things in the world, someone who is consumed with pride, someone who is eaten up with the boastfulness of his life, his accomplishments, his achievements, his ambitions. And David appears here in a different way, as a seed of the woman who is anointed by the Holy Spirit and comforted by the same. He is a man who is characterized as doing the will of the Lord God. And these two are in conflict with one another. And that conflict carries forward in the story of Israel going into the story of the church until finally we see this. King Saul is a foreshadow of another man that you all know very well. A religious zealot known as Saul. Pharisee of the Pharisees. Hebrew of Hebrews of the tribe of Benjamin, just like his namesake. He's little in his own eyes, but he's got a gigantic ego. Like King Saul, he opposes the new king that was from Bethlehem. And he threatens and he persecutes the followers of Jesus unto death. He punishes them in their places of worship and even tries to make them blaspheme, speak evil of God and worship other gods. And like his namesake, in raging fury, he persecutes the followers of this new king to distant places with authority and support from his own advisors. He describes himself in this way in his own writings, that he was a persecutor and a violent man. He was a soldier of fortune, a zealous terrorist, a bounty hunter, a hired gun, if you will. That's Saul in the book of Acts. And King David foreshadows none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. And like David, the Lord Jesus will come and confront his enemy Saul at high noon in a radiant flash of divine light that's brighter than the sun. And that glorious light of the true King David will drive his enemy Saul to his face on the ground. And then he will speak to him and say, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul will answer, who are you? And this bright and shiny voice will answer, I'm your Savior. I'm Jesus. Whom you're persecuting. But unlike the old King Saul, this new Saul will respond in a different way. When David confronted the old King Saul, he wept crocodile tears and expressed this worldly sorrow, a fake repentance that eventually led to his death. But this new Saul, the Pharisee, responds with a broken spirit and a contrite heart and Godly sorrow that leads to salvation without regrets. This is true repentance. A true change of life. I love how Peter Lightheart puts this in his article, Second Saul. Where he says, Jesus snatched Saul from the tragic path of the first Saul, which is how he learned of the cunning power of Jesus 
who enlists Saul's to be heralds of David's kingdom and turns Saul's into Jonathan's beloved sons. So this new Saul, blinded by the light, but the eyes of his heart were opened. He sacrifices his pride, surrenders his crown to serve the king of glory. And that king of glory sends him on a new mission to open the eyes of the blind, to turn others from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to the weakness of God, to receive forgiveness of sins and a place among all those who are sanctified by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and to preach the gospel that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. The story of Saul and David also tell us something about our life in the gospel. So let's take a look at this story in its contemporary context. What does this story have to do with you and with me? What do our stories have to do with this story? How do they fit together? Well, one thing we learn from Saul and David is that good and evil cannot coexist with each other. They cannot live in peace with each other. And this conflict, this enmity is going to show up in a variety of ways, physical and spiritual. It's unavoidable. The apostles of Christ warn us throughout their writings that the world is full of many kinds of Saul's, proud men who are angry and jealous, who threaten and accuse, who attack and seek to harm us, to make life miserable. And why would they do it? Well, they have no just cause. But pride is the fortress of their hearts, and they feel justified in bringing us harm and bringing trouble into our life. Why? Because they hate the Lord Jesus and everything he stands for and everyone he loves and everything he's trying to build and establish. They're antichrists. Now, for those of us who live in the lap of luxury, which is all of us, as tempted as you were to look around at some of your neighbors, if you live in North Texas, in the Rockwall area, this includes you. For those of us who live in the lap of luxury and we're used to all of our creature comforts, This sort of thing might shake us and scare us, as it should. We should be stirred by such things to know that the comforts we enjoy today could be snatched away tomorrow. But the problem is, we believe that comfort is a right, not a privilege. That the world owes us something. The universe should smile upon us because we're decent folks. That we have a right to be comfortable. That we have a right to live in coziness. That safety and security are are something that everyone owes us. So the idea that it could be taken away, the idea that somebody would try to rock the boat or bring that down, scares us. And I want to be very frank with you. I want to say to you that our problem is that we're too soft. We're too soft. We're hypersensitive. Every little thing offends us. Every little thing shakes our world. 
We think every little thing is a, is a personal attack against us. We've lost perspective. We need to toughen up because trials and tribulations are going to come. If they haven't already hit you, they're going to hit you. They're going to come. They're going to happen. Jesus tells us, in this world, you will have trouble. It should come as no surprise to us. Trouble is coming. And the reason trouble comes is because the devil is always working. And souls are in the world, appearing in many shapes and sizes. So trouble is going to come to us just as surely as it came to David, a man after God's own heart. Just as surely as it came to Jesus, God's own heart in the flesh. Just as surely as it came to Paul, they will come to you. And that is why the apostles give us warnings, but warnings that might be taken as marching orders. Here's what they say. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. As though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share in the sufferings of Christ. That you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Now, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, and undoubtedly you will be, you're blessed. Because the spirit of glory and the spirit of rest is upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or as a meddler. Mind your own business. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a meddler. Let none of you suffer as a liberal or a conservative. Let none of you suffer as a Republican or a Democrat. Shall we go on? If you're going to suffer for Christ, make sure you're suffering for Christ and not for some silly cause. This is what Peter says. If anyone suffers as a Christian, as a little Christ, a follower of Jesus, a cross-bearer, let him not be ashamed. But let him glorify God in the name of Jesus, the Savior of the world. So you see how our story is tied to the story of Christ in the church, which was tied to the story of Saul and David, which is tied to this big story of the gospel of God in the world. Story shapes life. Which story shapes your life? God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And since that is true, how shall you live? Humble yourselves under God's mighty hand so that at the proper time, God may lift you up. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit.
Let us pray.